Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Robert, have you ever had the misfortune of going to work having forgotten to brush your teeth in the morning first? No. You've never done it? No, I just don't. Uh, I, I don't remember having done it. I might have done this earlier on, but I've, I've really, I've been on a tear the last uh, 10 years or so um, <laughs> where I've, I've really put a focus on maintaining uh, proper dental hygiene. Yeah, you, you keep the mouth regimen under the lash. Yeah, like I go into to see my dentist and the dentist will say, hey, well, do you, uh, uh, what's it like when you don't wear your mouth guard at night? Because I wear a mouth guard at night to keep from grinding my teeth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, I, and when they ask me this, I say, well, what, what do you mean? You tell me to wear this every night. I wear it every night. Wow. So, um, so yeah, I, I try and, and follow everything to the letter. You are like a monk. You are like a medieval <laughs> monk with that kind of discipline. I guess, you know, the, the fear of hell. But in this case, the, the, the hell that I, uh, that I am uh, 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 fearful of is a, a, a hell of lost teeth or decaying teeth, etc. Oh, nasty mouth is a kind of hell. I mean, when this has happened to me, it feels so disgusting. Mm-hmm. My mouth feels nasty and unhealthy. And I assume my breath must be terrible. And I assume that, like, my teeth are all going to fall out by 6 p.m. It's, it's just <laughs> Bad. And I also feel like I have I have made some seriously injurious, irreparable mistake for my own dental health. I know that's probably way over the line, but I, I do feel that way sometimes. And and brushing one's teeth can sometimes feel I don't know if you share this, feel as absolutely essential as like biologically essential and primordial as sleeping or breathing, you know, that like if you don't do it, something is deeply wrong with your body and you're not living as you were meant to. Yeah, it's it's a totally weird area that I, I've probably spent way too much time uh, contemplating. Because on one level, yes, when you're when you're younger, older people tell you, hey, you need to brush your teeth, you need to floss your teeth, you need to do these things. And when you're young, you're, you're just kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll do those things. I'll do those things some of the time. Um, it's, and oftentimes it's only as you get older that you realize, ooh, I, I need to double down on that. Or worse, I really should have listened to them back in the day, back when I was younger. Well, you don't want to be looking back and saying, oh, if only I'd done things differently, I wouldn't have goblin shark mouth. <laughs> but it also doesn't help that so many of us are pet owners and if you get older pets, then you know the experience of your your, your pet outliving its teeth mm-hmm. um, and, or having to pay for uh, for brushings for your various animals, having to get in there and brush their teeth yourself, that sort of thing. You know, I was wondering, what happens if you just don't brush your teeth? I have this fear that the bad things will happen if I don't. But what actually happens if you just say, let it go for a year? And there are actually quite a few articles about this. Mm -hmm. It must be a thing people wonder pretty often. For example, I was just reading an article in USA Today that interviewed a dentist and a spokesperson from the American Dental Association named Matthew Messina about what would happen if you stopped brushing your teeth for a year. And for reference, the, uh, the ADA, the American Dental Association, recommends flossing once a day and brushing twice a day. Yes. And that's that's what everyone should do. at least twice a day. I, I say do three if you can. <laughs> but everybody apparently has a different reaction to neglect of dental hygiene. So there are probably some people out there, do, just depending on your genes, your diet, your microbiome, various things about you that that could do this and wouldn't suffer all that many consequences mm-hmm. probably. There are other people who would have very negative consequences. But generally, on average, people who stop brushing their teeth for a year would be a lot more likely to develop tooth decay in the form of cavities 
disease and more likely to develop periodontal disease or gum disease. And both of these can be really bad. They cause pain in the mouth, can cause tooth loss. Uh, So a primary function of toothbrushing is to just brush away bacterial formations on your teeth. And if you don't brush that bacteria away, it can cause immune system reactions and the gums can potentially lead to a host of other sort of secondary health problems in the body, which aren't even in the mouth. It can even, it's been linked to say pneumonia and heart attacks and so forth. And then on the more aesthetic side, you of course have your teeth looking like you haven't brushed them in a year and chronic bad breath probably. But sometimes I think about how my toothbrush, the toothpaste I use, these are products of 21st century industry. And if you go back a few hundred years, people didn't have products exactly like these. They might have had some other things they did to their mouth. And we'll discuss those in a bit. But What would it be like to be, say, a 15th century peasant who just doesn't have a toothbrush and toothpaste? Yeah, because our dental health and and hygiene, as we understand it, is is dependent upon this modern technology, Mm -hmm. upon these inventions. And what did we do before those inventions? Because obviously there's like a base level, right, of like the animal level of maintaining your dental hygiene in which you use your tongue and maybe your nails to remove and, you know, dislodge bits of, of vegetable or flesh. But uh, but beyond that, uh, what was there? Well, that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Not only where does modern toothpaste come from, but what passed for toothpaste in uh, ages past. And the relationship between why we use toothpaste and what it actually does. I have to, to admit that the historical question here is something I always think about whenever I'm watching uh, a movie that's, that has a historical setting, especially if it's a big budget modern Hollywood production, mm-hmm. because you'll inevitably have just somebody with, you know, they've, they've put grime on their face, they're wearing splendid outfits, but then their, their teeth uh, just shine like, uh, like the sun. They're just so pearly white. And uh, I'll often say, uh, I'll often call them out on that. I'll be like, oh, that, right. that doesn't seem right at all. Like the teeth in Braveheart and yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, to go in the other direction, if you look at post-apocalyptic films, especially bad post-apocalyptic movies from the 80s, the kind mm-hmm. of the Mad Max ripoffs that like canon films did, like uh, Cyborg, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, you'll get mm-hmm. people living in this squalid future and they 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 do the thing where they take people who have normal, healthy-looking teeth and they just kind of rub grime on it. Like they've got the, these streaks of black across the their teeth. Like in the future, everybody just eats shoe polish. Well, who knows? I mean, that's actually going to line up in interesting ways with some of the uh, earlier uh, dental hygiene inventions uh, that we'll be discussing today. Oh, that's true. I didn't even think about that. The people in Cyborg... Those those blackened teeth could be a product of their their tooth cleaning regimen, not a product of decay. Right, or you know, it has to do with their uh, their tobacco uh, usage. Who knows? But another question I have is: okay, so if we don't brush our teeth for a year or even longer, some bad things can happen to our mouth. Which makes me think that if you go back to prehistoric life, people didn't really have much of anything: toothbrushes, toothpaste. Uh, they they probably didn't really brush their teeth much. You know, they had fingers and like they. Had twigs to chew on. They could probably rub around in their in their mouth with their fingers if they felt like it. We don't know how much they did that. But did prehistoric peoples just always have nasty mouth syndrome with teeth rotten away by the time they were teenagers? Like, how did teeth survive before we had modern dental care and dental hygiene equipment? And I actually found a really interesting paper about this. This was a paper published in Nature Genetics in 2013 by uh, Christina J. Adler et al., with a bunch of authors, called Sequencing Ancient Calcified Dental Plaques Shows Changes in Oral Microbiota with Dietary Shifts of the Neolithic and Industrial Revolutions. 
And so the takeaway of this paper is despite not having the dental hygiene methods that we do, prehistoric hunter-gatherers had pretty good teeth. They could probably pick at their teeth with twigs and so forth, but they didn't have toothpaste. They didn't have toothbrushes. They didn't have dentists. So how did their teeth survive? And the answer appears to be their teeth were pretty healthy because they survived on a totally different diet than we do now. Yeah, indeed. Think of all the the coffee and sugary sodas that they were not consuming. I think it seems like sugar is a big part of this equation Mm -hmm. because much of our oral health depends on the relationship with the microbial organisms that live in our mouths. It's kind of fun to think about the fact that your mouth is an ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, and and sugar is something that you're you're only really supposed to uh, find so much of in in the wild. Our modern candy bars just throw all of that out of whack. Uh, my, my my father, I should mention, was a dentist, and uh, and one of the things he always told uh, uh, my sisters and me was uh, was if you eat that candy bar, it's just going to rot your teeth out. Like don't don't eat that candy bar. Don't eat that. We still ate a lot of candy, but the message was always there. Like it's if eating consuming too much sugar is a road to garbage. Well, that – you can assume that that might be like one of those kind of just uninformed parental warnings. It's just to scare you. The same way they say like don't – if you watch too much TV, you'll go cross-eyed or something (laughs) like that. You know, that's not really based in fact. But but it does appear that that piece of advice is somewhat based in fact. There does appear to be a relationship between sugar consumption and poor oral health. Because if you change what you eat, you also change what the organisms in your mouth eat. It's an ecosystem. You're changing what chemical energy profile is going into that ecosystem in your mouth. And different microbes eat different things. Change your diet and you might encourage a different crowd to take up shop in your teeth. And so uh, the prehistoric hunter-gatherer diet favored things like meat, vegetables, and nuts. And apparently that is pretty friendly to your teeth. One of the important things to to keep in mind here is that – Inventions do not occur within a vacuum. Right. Uh, inventions are affected by other inventions. Yes. And there's a pretty key invention involved here. That invention, of course, would be agriculture. About 10,000 years ago, Neolithic humans began the farming revolution, which caused a massive shift in the human diet. If you were in one of these regions that was sustained by farming, suddenly your diet would shift from things like, you know, meats, wild-growing fruit and vegetables and nuts and roots and all that into carbohydrate-rich grains. Grain-based breads and porridges and things like that. So you're you're suddenly shifting your diet to this mainly carb-driven thing. And then there's another shift that happens again, once again due to technology. Uh, The Industrial Revolution brings about the widespread availability of processed flour and sugar around, say, 1850 or so. And so this study that I mentioned a minute ago, it it looked at 34 early European skeletons to show that the transition from the hunter-gatherer diet to farming, quote, shifted the oral microbial community to a disease-associated configuration. And apparently around the Industrial Revolution, uh, karyogenic bacteria, which is bacteria that causes tooth decay, became dominant in our mouths. And mouth microbiota are much less diverse now, which may be the cause of all the chronic oral disease we see in wealthy industrial societies today. 
Yeah, it's a case where innovations and innovations un- unbalance things. And then we have to create other inventions. We have to come up with, uh, with, with various schemes to try and rebalance everything. Yeah, exactly. So one of the authors of that paper was Alan Cooper, director of the Australian Center for Ancient DNA. And uh, so speaking to NPR, he said, quote, what you've really created is an ecosystem which is very low in diversity and full of opportunistic pathogens that have jumped in to utilize the resources which are now free. And as a result, of course, what happens is that the mouth is constantly fighting these microbes that live inside it. Uh, To quote Cooper again, quote, you're walking around with a permanent immune response, which is not a good thing. It causes problems all over the place. This reminds me of of one of my favorite quotes from Tina Fey that was in her uh, her autobiography. Uh, She's talking about the experience of growing older Mm -hmm. and waking up in the morning and just having this, this horrible taste in your mouth. And she uh, uh, surmised that, quote, the mouth dies first. <laughs> and uh, it makes sense that it would be if the, the mouth is just this constantly just ground zero for this war against pathogens. Well, this is just one front on which we're seeing more and more evidence that our microbiome, you know, the, the microbes that live within us and on us, really do affect our health in, in pretty extreme ways that we haven't really recognized until very recent times. But anyway, what all this so far tells us is that it's not necessarily a fact of nature that animals just have to brush their teeth with toothpaste and and floss and stuff. I mean, it it can be good for animals to clean their mouths, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's worth noting that cleaning your teeth is not merely a human Thing. I mean, if you just think about how we might, again, dislodge food with, your, with a tongue or, or a nail uh, in some cases. And, and certainly there are other creatures that may do the same. Uh, tooth grooming, even with tools, has been observed among chimpanzees. So they might use twigs for close work when fingers won't cut it. But do they stand outside the Olive Garden with that twig hanging out of their mouth in the parking lot holding a styrofoam clamshell? Uh, no, I don't believe they do. But, uh, but they're not there yet as a species. But from these results, it seems pretty clear that what what's going on is that we have created through our technology a need for an oral hygiene regime that was that was not necessarily there in our wild existence. And so, how how do we cope with this new microbiome in our mouths? This new more hostile ecosystem between the teeth and the gums. Yeah, when we look into the we look back into the deeper history of toothpaste itself, um, it, it seems pretty clear that that people were figuring out things they could do uh, pretty early on. Um, in terms of recorded history, uh, it's thought that Egyptians probably started using uh, something like toothpaste as as long ago as maybe 5,000 uh, uh, BCE. And also we see evidence for this uh, among the ancient Greeks, the Romans, the ancient Chinese, the ancient Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is a long tradition of, I mean, one, one of the things you see uh, if you go back into the ancient world is medical manuals. Yes. And, so, and uh, like uh, more magical edging kind of potion manuals, and these things may sometimes give you recipes for what to do with the mouth. A lot of times there will be like a powder or something it'll tell you to grind up and you rub that on the teeth to clean them. Yeah, I was uh, actually reading uh, in in a book – uh, titled Clean, uh, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity by Virginia Smith, which is a, a really excellent book that I've, I've referred to on podcasts in the past. Uh, but she mentions that the ancient Egyptians indeed 
had to deal with dental problems and that this is ultimately one of the, quote, problems of civilization, uh, you know, getting back again to the, the, the idea that the, the agricultural revolution uh, created uh, some of these problems for us. Uh, she says that it's likely that excess consumption of honey and sugar likely impacted at least the wealthy in Egyptian society, uh, but that many ancient Egyptians had teeth that were also worn down to the quick due to poorly milled flour. Oh, yeah. So uh, if you have flour that's got like um, it's got like sand or grit mixed in, yeah. it can actually wear down your teeth from chewing on it. Yeah. So all you kids out there that love to eat sand and we're looking for an excuse to stop eating sand, there you go. Yeah, yeah. If, if you get sand in your mouth at the beach, uh, do wash it out if at all possible. <laughs> Just... <laughs> Because it gives me the all-overs to think about the alternative here. So thinking about tooth, what does toothpaste actually do? In fact, toothpaste does something sort of like the sand in the bread, except hopefully not as harsh on the teeth. Uh, it, it fulfills functions related to both health and aesthetic. So on the health side, it removes the buildup of dental plaque, which is a bacterial biofilm that grows on surfaces inside the mouth, such as on teeth and around the gum line. And that helps prevent tooth decay and gum disease. But then the aesthetic side, of course, is that it also helps prevent bad breath. It prevents, you know, stinky mouth. It helps keep the teeth appearing white and healthy. And it also sometimes just provides a pleasant taste, which is actually, I think, a more important factor in why people use toothpaste than many of them realize. Now, back on the health side, there are a couple different things that it does. On one hand, it's an abrasive, kind of like the uh, the sand or the grit or something that helps rub the stuff away in the mouth. And on the other hand, sometimes it has uh, chemical aids as well, like an ingredient might be something like fluoride. Yes, fluoride. Uh, that's an essential one as well. Well, we'll we'll get back to the importance of fluoride in a bit. Well, yeah, that that'll be in the modern section. First, we got to tell you about what people used to do to their teeth. Right, and before we do that, we should probably take our first break. But yeah, when we come back, uh, we will uh, we will jump in the time machine and uh, brush our teeth among uh, the denizens of history. Robert, would you like to go on a journey with me? to 12th century Italy to find out what tooth care looked like then. Now let's do it. Okay, so I want to quote from the Trotula, which is a famous collection of treatises on women's health from medieval Italy, uh, translated. This is a translation by Professor Monica H. Green. And there are several entries in the Trotula about what to do about problems with the teeth. First of all, here's one. For black teeth, off to a good start. Quote, for black and badly colored teeth, take walnut shells well cleaned of their interior rind, which is green, and we rub the teeth three times a day. And when they have been well rubbed, we wash the mouth with warm wine and with salt mixed in if desired. Hmm. Do you swallow the wine? I would think not, not with the salt uh, thrown in there. But, you know, this, uh, this reminds me of episodes that we've recorded for Stuff to Blow Your Mind where we've talked about the history of, well, cocktails, but also things that were sort of like cocktails that at least involved alcohol being mixed with other substances. And very often those were magic potions or some sort of medicinal uh, mixture that was supposed to age you. And very often they did involve wine or some other alcohol. It is striking how many of the treatments of the past mm -hmm. involved alcoholic beverages. It almost makes you think that, like, in some cases, the alcoholic beverage may have been a sort of consolation prize for the fact that the treatment does not generally work. Mm -hmm. Or if it had some kind of placebo effect, the placebo effect might have been linked to the fact that the alcohol gets you a little bit drunk. 
Yes, and, and I, I can't think about uh, the salt aspect of this without thinking of, about some of the saltwater treatments that have been employed in the past, where you're essentially, you're, you are just drinking salt water, maybe salt water mixed with honey or milk or something, uh, but, uh, but just drinking a bunch of salt water to try and cure some ailment. Oh, yeah. Some of the ancients actually thought that that could heal you of problems. Yeah, and the not-so-ancients, uh, if yeah. I recall correctly. Uh, here's another one. This is also from the Trotula. This one sounds more like this is for rich people, I think. Quote, for whitening black teeth and strengthening corroded or rotting gums and for a bad-smelling mouth, this works the best. Take some each of cinnamon, clove, spikenard, mastic, frankincense, grain, wormwood, crabfoot, date pits, and olives. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not sure I know what crabfoot is. I think crabfoot is a plant. Okay. I was looking it up. There appears to be a plant that, at least in the modern world, that is some kind of uh, – plant that may be a parasitic plant that grows on the tea tree or something okay. that it some modern people on the internet I've seen refer to as crabfoot. But as to this medieval reference, I don't know if it refers to the same thing or something else or to just crab's feet. I would hope they would say foot of crab if it were, if it were an actual foot of a crab. Yeah. All right, we get all these together. What do we do with them? Well, you gr so to resume the quote, grind all of these and reduce them to a powder, then rub the affected places. Likewise, in order to make black teeth white, take 10 drams of roasted pumice, 10 drams of salt, 2 drams each of cinnamon and cloves, and honey as needed. Mix the pumice and salt with a sufficient amount of honey, then place them on a plain dish upon the coals until they burn, and reduce the other spices to a powder, and when there is need, rub the teeth. Well, that doesn't sound all that bad. Well, yeah, they're putting honey in there. I was like, wait a second, you're brushing your teeth with honey? That sounds counterproductive. Well, I think one possibility here, and uh, and uh, I believe I read this in reference to the ancient Egyptians, is that uh, if you were to use honey in your toothpaste, it would help hold everything together. Because if uh, because with all these ingredients, like it sounds like it's coming together as a powder, and certainly powders were employed, but the difference between a powder and a paste is kind of the uh, the addition of some sort of viscous substance, Right, right. Now for a few other uh, recipes for ancient toothpastes, um, which again, various paste washes, uh, toothpicks uh, were used throughout Eurasia. We have the ancient Egyptian evidence as well. Uh, as pointed out uh, by a 2016 National Geographic article, a 4th century CE recipe, uh, and I, I believe this was, a, this was an, an Egyptian uh, recipe, called for a paste made from salt, pepper, mint, and dried iris flour. Dentist uh, Heinz Newman actually tried this out in uh, 2003 and reported that it made his mouth feel clean and fresh, though it also made his gums bleed. Ooh. Still, he said that this was probably uh, this probably would have been an improvement over some of the the soap toothpaste that were used prior to World War II. Soap toothpastes. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's just a, a reminder, uh, and we'll get into this uh, as we pr pr progress here. That that really toothpaste as we know it, uh, the dental dental hygiene products as we know it are really a post World War II phenomenon. Like that is really where we enter the more or less modern age of of dental hygiene. Fourteenth and fifteenth century England, you had toothpaste made from honey, salt, rye flour, or meal, uh, and uh, the honey, as I mentioned earlier, this held it all together and gave it flavor. Uh, also, from the from the time period, you had tooth powder made from the burnt branches of a broom plant mixed with burnt alum. Uh, and this would have been a black, ashy substance that had a likely just horrid taste. <laughs> but maybe that's where, uh, you know, the blackened teeth of uh, post-apocalyptic societies come from. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. for some reason, this is the only, the, the only thing they know to go back to. 
they, they skip all the other dental hygiene products and they just go back to this ashen mixture. We're out of guzzoline. Time to get out the blackened alum. <laughs> uh, now, I mentioned uh, the book Clean earlier, uh, and uh, she includes uh, some interesting material on uh, 18th century Paris. In Clean, Smith writes that you kind of had a perfect storm of bad teeth uh, at the time because you had the existing problems of dental hygiene, again, sort of the, the, the problems of civilization, compounded by poverty, and increased access to sugars, sticky fruits, and sweet meats that uh, traditional teeth cleaning methods just couldn't contend with. You couldn't just scrape or wipe your mouth clean with sticks and cloth like one might have been able to for uh, uh, in previous ages. Uh, you know, suddenly these, these methods that we had that were, you know, pretty good were suddenly just ineffective. On top of that, you had a lot of additional damage done by coarse and badly ground powders, ashes, and whiteners. So the, uh, the, the, the very um, products that are being rolled out to help with dental hygiene are also contributing to some of the problems. Uh, worn enamel and irritated gums uh, end up resulting from these products. Uh, and teeth could also be destroyed by uh, overuse of cleansing sticks and irons that were used to, you know, to, to, to get in there and, uh, and scrape them clean. But toward the end of the century, uh, she notes, uh, increased understanding and vastly improved brushes and paste were beginning to make an impact. Oh, Robert, this is this is giving me vibes from like a marathon man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Is it safe? Well, overuse of cleansing sticks and irons, it sounds like it is not safe. <laughs> we do not recommend the use of irons. Now, one of the common features you're seeing in many of these ancient toothpaste and tooth powder recipes is that there is uh, th there's a common need for some kind of abrasive powder, something that would be also useful in, say, scrubbing a pot clean or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, sometimes they might use salt, like rock salt, or they might use uh, sand or ash or something like that. We've seen references to powders that, that used ox hooves or that used something like eggshells, which, ugh, that, that sounds really awful. Awful. Or, as we mentioned several times earlier, pumice. You could look to the Greeks and Romans who occasionally used uh, crushed bone and oyster shells, Ugh. powdered charcoal and bark. Uh, and the Romans also added flavoring uh, to assist with, with bad breath. So many terrible stories of the ancient Roman period involve oyster shells. Yeah. I was thinking about like the murder of Hypatia. That, that, that's supposedly they like killed her with oyster shells. Huh. Like a bunch of them or just just like one really sharp one? Well, this might not be a historical anecdote. It mm -hmm. might just be the legend, but the story is that uh, Hypatia was killed by a mob who, like, scraped her to death with oyster shells. Oh. Just horrible. Yeah. Well, I guess that'll get the get the job done, though. Um, the, the Chinese are said to have uh, had a wide variety of toothpaste over time, which included uh, the use of ginseng, herbal mints, and salt. Uh, and this makes sense given the, 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 the robust nature of Chinese traditional medicine. But before 1850, most toothpastes were not paste. They were powders. They were, uh, again, some sort of powdery substance that you would, you would put in your mouth and kind of rub into your teeth and your, your gums to clean things up. I mean, I'm thinking a uh, traditional comet scrub. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't there a song about that? Makes your mouth turn green? No, I don't know this song. Oh, we're getting sidetracked. <laughs> All right, well, let's take uh, another break. When we come back, we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about modern toothpaste. All right, we're back. So, 
I mentioned World War II earlier, uh, and, and that's that's really where we're, we're heading to in this uh, portion of the, the episode, because we see improved dental powders, pastes, and brushes during the 19th century, but the modern age of dentistry doesn't really kick in until after World War II. You had, um, in the United States, you had army dentists that uh, championed um, a modern dental health practice of biannual checkups, a healthy diet, and twice-a-day brushing. And, uh, and then they bring this back to the civilian world with them. Uh, they, 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 they bring this back to private practice. And uh, the resulting high standards in U.S. hygiene and cosmetics, which is always key because with – I mean we see this in the, some of these early examples too. Dentistry involves both hygiene and cosmetics. Some of these, these uh, efforts are about, yes, let's, keep the, let's make the mouth healthy. Let's keep the teeth where they are. But others are about, let's make the, let's make the breath smell nice. Let's make the teeth look shiny. Well, I mean, I would say that oral hygiene, dental hygiene products are an area where there is a lot of blurring of the line between health and aesthetics. Yeah, and it can, I mean, honestly, it can be frustrating <laughs> when you go to the dentist and you have to ask this question. Like, you want to trust yourself completely over to uh, um, a healthcare uh, professional. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I certainly um, suggest people do that. But but at the same time, sometimes in the back of your head, you you, you want to ask, wait, is, the, is this service that is being offered me, is this, is this aligned with hygiene or is this about cosmetics? Is this mm -hmm. about... Improving the uh, you know the the, the subjective uh, uh, appeal of my smile, or is it about more objective uh, health benefits? And of course, most modern toothpaste. We mentioned earlier that toothpaste in general it serves both functions usually, right? So the ingredients of modern toothpaste usually include things like mild abrasives, and that's just going to be to help scrub things away. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you've got flavors, things that maybe taste sweet or taste minty and fresh. And I would say the mintiness of toothpaste is in the modern world a very, very important part of the package. Yes. It is a crucial part of what you're paying and why you use the product. Now, here's something interesting. Uh, so many other products are marketed, especially in the United States, are marketed towards either male consumers or female consumers. But we, I don't think we really see this with uh, with toothpaste and uh, and uh, and uh, mouthwash. Oh no, gendered marketing of toothpastes. Yeah. Huh. Well, what's like the the Axe body spray brand of toothpaste? <laughs> like have the the hardest, toughest mouth. I mean, I guess to a limited extent, maybe you could say something like Arm and Hammer. <laughs> is like maybe accidentally marketing towards a, a, like a, a hyper-masculine audience because it's arm and hammer, right? But at the same time, for the most part, adult toothpastes are kind of all the same. It's only like you basically you have kids' toothpaste who have – tastes like, you know, sickeningly sweet mango sherbet or Ugh. something or that, that blue stuff with the sparkles in it. And then most adult toothpaste, at least the, ma the main toothpaste, not talking about some of the ones you might acquire only at health food stores, but like the, the kind you can get at the grocery store. I feel like most of those are going to be more or less in the same realm. Our mild abrasives are made of eagle claws. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I don't mean to encourage all you advertising brains out there to try gendered marketing of toothpaste. Leave it be. We don't need more gendered marketing. I mean, unless it encouraged uh, improved dental hygiene. I mean, then I guess oh, I would yeah, be for maybe. it, you know. If, but, but I don't think there's any, like, gender-based um, messaging against brushing your teeth. Like, what are you doing brushing your teeth? Don't be a girl. Like, nobody's saying that. <laughs> Other common ingredients in toothpaste would be things called humectants, which uh, sort of 
prevent the the paste in the mouth from getting too dry or uh, all the water leaving it. You got usually some kind of binder or thickener, somewhat the role that honey might have played in mm-hmm. these older toothpaste, kind of holding everything together. You've got foaming agents that make it foam in the mouth, and that's an important aesthetic part of the process. If you brush your teeth with a toothpaste that doesn't foam, you might be wondering, is it working right? Right. You want to get a good froth going in there because it's then it, I think also that it reminds one of scrubbing one's body with soap, right? Mm -hmm. But then, of course, there might also be chemical agents in the toothpaste that do something in particular, say, uh, like a a whitening formula or, say, it might contain fluoride. Yeah, and we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that that water uh, fluoridation is one of the top medical achievements of the 20th century. Do not believe your local conspiracy theory about uh, the fluoride in your drinking water. I mean, unless you just want to end up rubbing your teeth with pumice. (laughs) Now, speaking of uh, conspiracy theories and whatnot, I do think it is worth reminding everyone out there that just because we've reached a certain point in uh, the evolution of of dental hygiene and dental hygiene products, it doesn't mean that we can't slip back uh, and fall into, uh, into pseudoscience, into conspiracy theory, or even into... Uh, like to, to, to put an optimistic spin on it, uh, traditional medical practices, alternative medical practices that have not yet been completely vetted uh, by modern uh, science. Are you referring to the oil pulling craze of several years ago? Oh, yeah. Uh, th- that's a good example. Uh, oil pulling, which is a, an oil dental rinse based on Ayurvedic practices. I don't really know anything about whether that's supposed to be actually efficacious or not. D- does it do anything good? Well, it's definitely one of these practices that some people swear by and some people have very strong opinions about. But generally speaking, those individuals are not going to be dentists uh, and it's not going to be – they're not going to be representatives of, say, the American Dental Association. Okay. So would you say if it provides any benefit, the evidence is not really in? Right. I I saw one source that was saying – that was kind of speculating on ways that it could work Mm -hmm. if it was working. That's kind of the answer one tends to to come across. That being said, they pointed out that there wasn't necessarily a reason why you couldn't do it in addition to – um, more modern dental practices. Mm-hmm. But that, uh, this is also a great question for any listeners out there because I'm sure there's somebody listening to this who has a very strong opinion about oil pulling <laughs> and I wouldn't <laughs> mind listening to, to, to what you have to say. Okay. We also, though, have to remember what we said earlier about uh, the other factors that play into one's overall dental hygiene. Uh, this per- one person on the left might be able to fall back on a more traditional or alternative method of maintaining the dental hygiene, and it will work for them, where the, the, the person on the other side, it will just – it will fail miserably. Like, you know, even with, with modern dental uh, um, hygiene methods, they might be kind of having an uphill battle. Yeah, it depends on a lot of things, your genes, your microbiome, your diet, mm-hmm. and all of that contributes. Now, on the other hand, I want to point out – we've been talking about a sort of modern – science-based dental hygiene. But as best I can tell, it is apparently the case to me that toothpaste is not strictly necessary to get many of the health benefits from toothbrushing. Uh, From what I've read, toothpaste essentially can help, but it's not like brushing your teeth without toothpaste is useless. Brushing teeth without toothpaste appears to be much better than not brushing at all. And there might be cases where the toothpaste isn't even providing all that much of a benefit on top of just brushing. Hmm. So if you're in a situation where you have, I don't know, you've gone out to a cabin in the middle of the woods and uh, you're, you're there for the night, there's no leaving, mm-hmm. the, the monsters are prowling in the forest, 
and you realize that you you brought your toothbrush, but you didn't bring any toothpaste, you you're, you're not that bad off. Right. You might not get some of the aesthetic benefits, such as uh, like the mintiness, you know, the breath cleaning, and especially if it, if you're trying to get some kind of chemical benefit out of your toothpaste, like whitening, or if your toothpaste provides fluoride, but also. If you're simply just brushing away as you would normally brush with a with a, you know the bristles of a toothbrush, you will succeed in removing a lot of the bacterial coating on your teeth, which is one of the primary health reasons for brushing your teeth. You want to try to get the bacteria off of the surfaces in your mouth so that they don't build up. Now, of course, if you are using toothpaste, one of the the, the key rules out there is that you do not swallow it uh, as as you are brushing your teeth or after you have brushed. You know, you spit in the sink. And then you wash your mouth out and you spit that in the sink as well. Yeah, our uh, our researcher Scott was looking at this and apparently toothpaste swallowing can be a, a really big deal. Yeah, now I, I had looked into this a little bit because I, I have a six-year-old and so in – in in teaching him to brush his teeth, you know, we were we were told, you know, don't let him swallow the toothpaste. You know, that's just one of the the parental rules that you you pass on. And so I looked into it a little bit. I'm like, why well, why why not? And then you, know, you see some of these uh, these reasons. They're like, okay, it's just a, it's a bad idea for them to swallow the toothpaste. Just really encourage them not to. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Scott brought up some of these specific uh, things that can happen if you even have a toothpaste overdose. A toothpaste overdose? What's a regular dose? What's the recommended (laughs) dose? (laughs) I guess there'd be none, right? None, yeah. As as absolutely little as possible. I mean, that's why you're spitting, you know, rinsing out your mouth, spitting again. There's no just, you know, there's no swallowing a little toothpaste as part of your breakfast. Um, In in fact, uh, Scott uh, pointed out uh, a page on medlineplus.gov. Uh, that uh, pointed out the following, quote, swallowing a large amount of regular toothpaste may cause stomach pain and possible intestinal blockage. Quote, these additional symptoms may occur when swallowing a large amount of toothpaste containing fluoride. Uh, they, this include, the list includes convulsions, diarrhea, difficulty breathing, drooling, heart attack, salty or soapy taste in the mouth. That seems kind of mild mm. compared to these others. Uh, but also slow heart rate, shock, tremors, vomiting, and weakness. So again, don't swallow your toothpaste. Uh, and if you have been doing so for some reason, uh, please stop. But why do they make it so delicious? <laughs> I, for instance, I, I brush my teeth at work here sometimes. And, uh, you know, it means having to spit into uh, a sink mm-hmm. in the men's room or spitting into uh, a water fountain. And sometimes I'll, I'm thinking of oh, somebody's going to walk by or, they'll, you know, they'll be washing their hands and they'll think I'm disgusting for spitting. But clearly the alternative is that I poison myself. So <laughs> I am going to continue to spit. Do you ever meet that guy who carries around like an empty Gatorade bottle that he spits his... his- Dip, dip mouth in or the chewing tobacco. No, there is there's such a person here. Yeah, I've met guys like that. But this is this is a Tennessee thing. I oh, think. I thought you meant a here at work thing. No, no, no. I remember this from Tennessee. Yeah, there'd be like a guy who's got an empty Powerade bottle. He already drank all the Powerade out of it. He's got a mouthful of tobacco product, and he walks around at some point needs to spit the tobacco juice out somewhere, and just goes right into the bottle that he carries in his hand. Oh, well, that's better than uh, I remember being in study hall in high school in Tennessee. And there was a desk at the back of the room, like an old, uh, like, teacher's desk made of wood, kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, it was on, on unsteady footing. And, and that's for, for some ungodly reason. Me and a, a few friends would hang out and, like, do our homework at the last minute. But in some other class, clearly, uh, students were chewing tobacco and then spitting into the desk. 
So <laughs> most of the drawers were filled with like, you know, scraps of paper <laughs> and uh, and tobacco spit. And occasionally the, the, the desk would leak a little. There would be like oh. a foul brown substance that would begin <laughs> dripping out of some corner of the desk and pooling on the floor. Um, it was, it was uh, disgusting. Robert, that is a wretched, wretched story. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. Courtesy of uh, Lincoln County High School. So here's another question we should address before we leave, because we've established that throughout history, you know, since the uh, the agricultural revolution, people have needed to clean their teeth much more than they did when, in a hunter-gatherer state. And especially since the Industrial Revolution, people's uh, oral health has been a, a bigger concern. You're more at risk given the kinds of diets people eat with refined sugar and flour and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so we know at some point – Toothbrushing became an extremely common thing in the Western world. But how did that happen? When did, when did that come about? And the American journalist and author Charles Duhigg wrote about uh, how toothpaste took hold of American culture in a book called The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. Uh, so in this book, Duhigg tells a story about sort of the toothpaste revolution. It's the story of a man named Claude C. Hopkins, who was one of the great and perhaps one of the great diabolical minds in the history of modern advertising. Hopkins wrote a book called, quote, Scientific Advertising. Hmm, it does sound sinister. So around the turn of the 20th century, apparently almost nobody in America brushed their teeth, at least not with toothpaste. Uh, Duhigg cites consumer research claiming that only 7% of people had toothpaste in their medicine chests around the turn of the 20th century. But then one day, a friend of Claude Hopkins uh, came to him for help promoting a new product that he was selling. It was an industrial manufactured toothpaste called Pepsodent. And the pure aesthetics of this name sounds so disgusting to me. It makes me <laughs> really? think of dyspepsia, like the only toothpaste endorsed by a dyspeptic, Jodon Baker. <laughs> uh, define uh, d- dyspeptic. Well, dyspepsia means indigestion, mm-hmm. you know, bad, bad digestion. Uh, but Would there, you think Jodon Baker has bad d- digestion? Uh, that's a line from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, yeah. Starring a dyspeptic, Jodon Baker. Which, which Jodon Baker movie was it? I think it was Final Justice. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Is that the one where he's running around Malta? Yes, yes. But anyway, there is actually a common thread in the names here. So uh, dyspepsia is indigestion. The root is pepsis, which is the ancient Greek word for digestion. And this was apparently a clue to the chemical formula of Pepsodent. It contained a chemical digestive agent to help break down or, quote, digest food stuck in the teeth. Okay, well, it's a little disgusting when you put it that way. (laughs) But a lot of things about dental hygiene are disgusting if you look too closely. Mm -hmm. So Hopkins signed on to spearhead an advertising strategy for Pepsodent, and it was a huge success. Duhigg writes that just a decade after the first Pepsodent ad campaign, uh, that tiny fraction of Americans who had toothpaste in their medicine chests jumped to 65%. And we went, so we went from almost no Americans brushing their teeth with toothpaste to more than half in a very short span of time. And Duhigg writes also that the advertising campaign wasn't just successful in America. By 1930, Pepsodent was on store shelves in China, South Africa, Brazil, Germany, among other markets. So the question is, what made Pepsodent such a successful advertising and marketing campaign? And so Hopkins had a strategy that he always used. It wasn't just for this product. It was something he'd used on other products. 
And the, the strategy was to create a repeated daily routine using the product. And the system might go something like this. Oatmeal gives you energy for 24 hours, but you have to eat it first thing in the morning. So this gets people into the habit of having it every day when they wake up. There's a cue. There's like a time of day cue that signals time to consume this product. And if, then if you consume it every day, you keep buying it because you're in a habit. And in fact, we still see this kind of strategy used in marketing all the time today, right? Try, trying to encourage you not just to try a product, but to make a product a repeated routine in your life. Yeah, a complete part of your daily breakfast, right? Exactly right. So... Hopkins wanted to find a way to, f to find that kind of trigger that would get people using Pepsodent like this every single day. And so he was reading through dental textbooks. And according to his own autobiography, he, he was doing this. He was reading these books and he found references to the fact that bacteria in your mouth form mucin plaques on your teeth. And you can feel this plaque with your tongue if you let it grow. And here's his idea to quote one of the ads, quote, just run your tongue across your teeth. You'll feel a film. That's what makes your teeth look off-color and invites decay. Another ad. Note how many pretty teeth are seen everywhere. Millions are using a new method of teeth cleansing. Why would any woman have dingy film on her teeth? Pepsodent removes the film. So uh, the fact is, of course, that Pepsodent, the product, was by no means the only way to get rid of this film, right? You could brush your teeth without Pepsodent and do it. Uh, according to Duhigg, one of the top dental authorities of the day explicitly said that the, the toothpaste was worthless. It did <laughs> not add anything to this process. But it didn't matter because Hopkins had found a cue to use the product, feeling the film, and the film is always reforming, so you always have a new cue to use the product again. And so this was Hopkins' model in how to sell something. It was you have a cue, a routine, and a reward. And Hopkins' original idea was the cue is you run your tongue across your teeth, and when you do that, you will happen to feel a film. It's just biology. It just happens. That triggers the routine, which is brushing with Pepsodent. And then there is a reward that comes after that, which is feeling that your mouth is now beautiful. But Duhigg points out that this was actually enhanced by the fact that there was a much more direct and sensory reward. You didn't just have to rely on the cognitive idea of like, ah, oh, now I'm more beautiful. You had a very crucial part of the recipe of Pepsodent that contributed to the cycle, and that part of the recipe was the mintiness. There was a clean tingling left in the mouth after the brushing had been done. And that, in fact, has been cited as the main reward that people feel. You feel your mouth, your mouth feels dirty, so you brush your teeth, and then it feels tingly. The tingle lets you know it's working. It does. And once <laughs> the tingle is gone and your mouth feels kind of hot and nasty again, don't you want to brush your teeth again? This also, uh, you know, I, I imagine this also factors into, into some various reasons that one could neglect one's dental health. Because if all you really want is the feel of something working. I mean, that alone is one of the reasons that you have various pseudoscientific medical practices that have been uh, pushed by, uh, by hoaxers over, over the, the ages. Just if something feels like it's happening, then you can, you, can, you, can, you can get caught up in that alone. Like, oh, you just drank a little bit of poison. Of, so that's what you're feeling. But no, it, you're feeling something and that is the cure. Yeah, well, I mean, we talked earlier about why so many of these quack medical cures from the past involve alcohol. Right. 
You're feeling something's happening. Right. So, I mean, you could fall into the trap of, say, thinking, well, I, I have mouthwash. Why should I brush my teeth? Why should I floss my teeth? Because if I just take a swig of this stuff, I feel a little tingle, and, uh, and then I'm minty afterwards. I'm good to go. That, of course, is, is, is inaccurate because uh, as we've discussed here, you're not going to uh, actually get the effects of brushing on your teeth and gums that way. But, yeah, one, one of the big takeaways for me at the end of this is that um, while to- toothpaste has come to feel like an invention that is the central part of modern dental health – uh, I, I think my takeaway from this research is that it's it's not that it's bad. Toothpaste is good, mm-hmm. but it's not the central part of modern dental health. That would be brushing and flossing and going to a dentist regularly. Right, yes. And that toothpaste is sort of like a little bonus. It helps a little bit more. That being said, I find myself I find myself oddly okay with someone using the, the dark science of uh, of marketing. Uh, if, if it results in people brushing their teeth more. Like mm-hmm. if, it, if it actually results in improved dental hygiene, that's good. Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, as long as it is, as long as people retain the idea that brushing is important whether you have toothpaste or not, but toothpaste can help. Still, at the end of the day, uh, I'm very pro-toothpaste. Oh, I mean, it, me too. Without it, I can only imagine how I would spend the day just thinking of the horrors of hell lurking <laughs> under my tongue. I am one of the people who's been affected by this uh, this this tingling cycle, the cue and the routine and the reward. I, I've got to feel the minty tingle in my mouth. And in fact, I have actually used toothpaste before mm-hmm. that did not have the the minty tingle after I was done brushing. I'm sure it helped clean my mouth just as good as uh, as a minty toothpaste did, but my mouth didn't feel like it was clean. Yeah, the the whole business of of clean is uh, is a complex one, and this is one of the, the topics that Virginia Smith uh, comes back to uh, uh, time and time again in the book is that throughout human history, we have hygiene, like, and then we have we have this idea of cleanliness that that is detached from the body, and these two things just become intertwined in human uh, culture, uh, and very difficult to to pull apart. So the things that are, are are yeah things that are hygienic and things that are clean it's often they're complicated uh, and they're intertwined to the point that you, you just really can't separate them again. Well, I think there's a case to be made psychologically and sort of theoretically that the the cleanliness drive, the hygiene drive, is sort of part of the over uh, of the overarching orderliness mindset, mm-hmm. which is a powerful part of of human psychology and can be deployed for for great good and great ill. I think some people would say that the orderliness drive gives us civilization and, and all that, but it also gives people, uh, I don't know, fascism and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, uh, so hey, uh, keep your mouth clean, but don't practice fascism of the mouth. <laughs> I don't know. I'd say go practice fascism of the mouth. <laughs> At least it's going to be a very orderly state in there. Uh, but we can, we'll just have to agree to disagree on that. All right, uh, so there you have it, another episode of Invention in the books. Uh, we looked at toothpaste. Who knows what we'll look at uh, next? We didn't even talk about flossing all that much, but dental floss is another invention of the post-World War II uh, dental uh, world. If dental floss is independently interesting, we will revisit it. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Invention. If you want to learn more about the show and check out other episodes, head on over to our website, inventionpod.com. 
Big thanks to Scott Benjamin for research assistance with this episode. Thanks to our audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know how you found out about the show, uh, where you listen from, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 